Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and if you've been following along on this podcast, a lot of times our guests talk about how close Pakistan's economic uh, economy writ large is, especially its political economy, how elite discourse dominates policy making, um, but we really don't understand uh, what are the elite like in Pakistan? Um, what do they think? Um, what are the internal cleavages um, that exist within elite networks in the country. And so I recently was looking and researching on this topic, trying to see um, if I could read and get more in depth about it. Um, and I found this wonderful book called Big Capital in an Unequal World, The Micropolitics of Wealth in Pakistan. It's written by Rosita Armitage. Um, she is a fantastic researcher who's spent a lot of time in Pakistan um, getting information out of elite families uh, that she got to know over, uh, we'll ask her how long of a period of time it took, but I just finished reading this book. It's a fantastic must read. Um, the link is in the description. Um, currently it's, I don't think it's available in Pakistan or on Amazon. The hardcover is uh, super expensive, which people on Twitter have flagged for both of us as well, but on Kindle it is available. Um, and so I would highly recommend that you uh, take out the time to read it. But we're going to be talking to Rosita about her research and how she stumbled into the world of the 0.1% of Pakistan's elite. Um, so Rosita, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you so much, Azair. It's really good to be here. I want to begin with um, how and why you decided to explore this uh, world of uh, elite wealth in Pakistan. What was the sort of driving force behind it? And what was your methodology in terms of approaching um, the research for this book? Okay, well, it was, it was a bit circuitous. I, I had been to Pakistan a number of times before I started doing this research. The first time was 20 years ago in 2001, and then I'd come back through my work um, in a development program. But when I started doing my PhD research at ANU, I knew that I wanted to, to work on Pakistan and the time that I had spent most recently in Pakistan had been with a lot of middle-class Pakistanis who were my colleagues and my friends. And I, you know, wanted to learn more about the group that I knew. And so I started this PhD research looking at the aspirations of the middle class. And when I got to Pakistan to begin the research, I was staying with a friend um, and the next day I was ready to head down on the Daewoo bus to Lahore to meet with some academics at Lums and ask them about these middle-class aspirations I was planning to study. And she said, look, don't catch the Daewoo. I've got a friend who's driving down this evening. Um, he's got a comfortable car. You may as well go with him. It'll, I'll feel better knowing where you are. So I ended up taking this, this trip with, um, with her friend, who I call Mutaza, and I write about this in the book as well. And over the three and a half hours of this, this car ride to Lahore, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a beginner anthropologist. I'm going to practice my interview skills. I'll ask him about himself and what he does and about his family. And I started asking these questions. And this amazing story came out of his, um, of his family business as a, as a cigarette manufacturer, um, of, his, of his family networks, of his uncles and cousins and, and family members who were involved in this business, of the trade they were doing with China, of these bribes they'd recently been asked to pay. Um, this colourful, amazing story. And so by the time that we 
arrived in Lahore, I said, you know, I'm, I'm an anthropologist and I'm planning to write a book. Uh, do you think, you know, would you be comfortable if I wrote about, you know, big business families like yours? And he said, yes, absolutely. You know, we're fascinating, <laughs> of course. And, um, and then I said, and would you be willing to introduce me to anyone else in your social circle who might be able to, to shed some light on, on this, you know, your group of people? And he said, absolutely. So the very next day, I sat down in, in his house with his brother and his cousin and one of their family friends. Um, who was the son of a very prominent, who is the son of a very prominent Lahori politician. And they just started writing this list of the people who they thought were the wealthiest and most powerful business people in Pakistan. And they just kept writing and writing and writing. I think it was about three pages of a notebook. Uh, and then they went through it and they, and they said, you know, who, who amongst this group are we able to access in some way or another, either through our professional work or through our friends or through the schools that we've been to and they went through and, and circled at least 20 people off that list that they said we can introduce you to this 20 right away and then we can help you access more as you go and within a week I think I had around 20 interviews lined up mostly based in Lahore with um, some of the biggest business families in Lahore and it, and it really ranged. So um, the youngest member of the family was about 25 and he was an Etchison um, alumni. And so he was introducing me to the, the, the younger generation of business family, you know, the 25 year olds. And they were sort of the, the children of the business moguls and the, the, um, the heads of the family. And then the older brother, you know, was in his late thirties and he was very professionally established. And, and he was introducing me to the heads of, of these big business families uh, and uh, <laughs> and from there it, it just opened quite quickly at every person that I interviewed introduced me to at least one other person uh, sometimes many more and some of them I met multiple times uh, either for second interviews or they would say you know come and have come and have chai at the polo club or, you know, come and meet this other friend. We're going to dinner. Come to this restaurant. You can come with us. And it just spiraled. It just um, really expanded. Uh, I mean, there were challenges. It wasn't just easy, easy sailing, but it really did open up in a way that um, I hadn't been expecting. So one thing um, that came up, I was talking to a friend or a couple of friends uh, about your book and sent them some screenshots of interesting quotes that stood out to me. Um, and one of them flagged, he was like, you know, maybe ask her um, what role she thinks her gender and the fact that she's a foreigner played in these big moguls opening up to her. And the question was relevant. And I thought about it as well in the sense that we have, for example, Dr. Christine Fair's book about Pakistan's army, again, a foreign female researcher who military generals opened up to and, and told her all about their thinking and worldview. Um, and that type of access uh, you know, is difficult for Pakistani journalists, researchers, especially women um, to have uh, access to these, you know, these people opening up in the way they tend to, at least on the surface level, open up to uh, foreign female journalists. Did you find that to be the case uh, as you were beginning to talk to these people? Or do you think it was, it was just the fact that you were asking them interesting questions and had the people connecting you? <laughs> 
Oh, it's, it, it's a good question. And it's one that I've been really interested in myself. So I've actually written an entire chapter of the book about my positionality as a middle-class foreign female and how that, um, that position uh, enabled me to access often older Pakistani wealthy men, right? Men who were far above me in social class, um, from a different culture and much older. Uh, being female definitely changes the dynamic significantly um, and the way that people view you. So I've explored this a lot um, and it depends on who you're meeting with and how they see you. But I think there is something um, well, one, I think people really enjoy talking about what they do. And it's, it's surprising how much people will open up to you if you display a genuine interest in their lives. Also, Pakistan is so, um, Pakistanis are so used to being asked questions about terrorism <laughs> and, um, and other things about political instability that I think many people were delighted to be asked a question about their success. You know, basically my first question to every businessman I spoke to was, I want to understand how you've become so successful. And that's a nice question to be able to answer about yourself. Yeah, they can share their story, <laughs> right? About their, their, their version of started from the bottom, now we hear sort of thing, which you touch upon in your book as well, um, in the sense that a lot of these families have gone through a lot of turbulence because of the instability in Pakistan. So I can, I can see why when you ask them that they actually want to share a lot about, you know, this wasn't as easy as most people would, would say about them after looking at their car and their watch and their mansions. Right, right, exactly. So, so there's, there's that effect as well. And people would sometimes speak for hours. I mean, I, I could, some interviews would be going at four hours and I would be getting exhausted, but they were just still going. So there was that effect, but I do think that gender has a significant role to play and also being a foreigner because I was outside of the class system uh, that, I was, that I was wanting to understand. So they didn't have to put me above them or below them or try to place me within that structure. And as a female, I, I think I was a real non-competitor. You know, I, I was an attentive listener without being someone who they had to yeah, compete with in any way. Um, and, and that, I think, was a real asset in terms of my ability to to observe people's lives uh, and to and to have them open up to me. I felt comfortable. One of, one of the things that sort of um, is a common theme, at least through the book, is this sort of um, I wouldn't say cleavage, but this tension, so to speak, between what the book refers to as Naveraje and the old Manili. And you touch upon how some of their you know, access to the old clubs is restricted by these gatekeepers who belong to the old sort of more, one would say, colonized um, families who have a certain way of living versus the new money elites that are essentially, you know, more conservative, have a different type of worldview, may not belong um, to uh, the same class system for the same amount of time as the old families. Um, tell the listeners a, a bit about this sort of tension between these two groups, um, particularly what I found interesting was that that tension also then all gives way to strategic alliance making on both sides through marriage. Um, so mm -hmm. help us understand how that tension and how that world works between the Nave Rajay and the old money elite in Pakistan. Yes. Okay. Well, it's, 
it's like where to start <laughs> there are so i would say that there's there's two groups that you've you've described the established elite and the navaraja and i describe the established elite as being those families who acquired their wealth prior to partition either in relation to land grants and other perks from the mogul empire or from association with the british and through benefiting from from that particular regime but also in the first couple of decades after pakistan was established and then i talk about the the navaraja being a group who acquired their wealth mostly post 1977 in relation to um the military regime that came in at the time and 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 other regimes that followed since even within the established elite group there are um a, a couple of different groups <laughs> there's the as i said there's this this group which is associated with the mogul empire and the british and then there is the group of traders who um muhammad ali jinnah relied on to establish the new pakistani nation and that's a really interesting group that becomes really important when we look at pakistani elites today because this group were mainly gujarati traders mainly middle class and they were called upon to help establish the industry that pakistan needed when the country was established you know i mean you probably already aware but you know when pakistan and, and india divided all the industrial infrastructure of this united india went to india and there was this enormous vacuum that needed to be filled to fulfill the needs of of the new pakistan so these middle class groups um were lured over to pakistan by jinnah and his government and given uh inducements you know, tax concessions and and other things to make doing business really attractive to them and as a result they really thrived within that community most of those traders the mahajirs moved to karachi uh and and many of the established elite that i talked about um settled in lahore usually from a really short distance on the other side um of punjab and they moved a short distance um so it's just worth keeping in mind some of those geographic um divisions as well so there's there's a there's a difference within the established elite is the point that i want to make there um the never raja as i said they emerged post 1977 in relation with um with general zia and um that was an interesting shift because um up until that point it had been a continuous struggle between the industrialists of karachi and the landed elites of lahore with each regime they had been seeking different privileges and competing for power when zia came in he um sought to wrest power from those two groups and to give uh power to his loyal supporters who were mostly in punjab but also to take it away from these established elites and some of the ways that he did that was to impose taxes on the elites at a much higher level than had been imposed up to that point he also introduced the first um agriculture tax which was made him wildly unpopular with the with many of the established elite but he uh, for the first time made government loans 
and finance available to a new group of businessmen and a new group of families. So small businesses were actually able to expand in a way that they never had up until that point. And that's the group that became the, the Navo Raja or the new money. So I think it's important that we look at that historical background because each group tends to demonize the other. And there's a real pejorative term, you know, tone when people say new money or Navo Raja, they, there's a lot of distaste that comes out. And actually, I think it's important to remember this is a group of business people who hadn't been given a chance and through a shift in regime, suddenly had an opportunity to acquire wealth and grow. And yes, that was in close association with the military regime and the perks that they were able to get through that regime. Uh, Speaking of military regime, um, there's this one thing um, that passes that stood out to me, and I'll read it here. Um, you refer to Sialkot um, as the city of in-laws because young officers are sent there and then they find in-laws. Um, and then you go on to write that, you know, they, meaning um, uh, military officers, prefer industrialist girls or even the daughters of bureaucrats with good standing, and they sort of shy away from politicians. Um, and then, you know, there's this part about marital strategies continue to be one of the more, most powerful mechanisms employed by the Pakistani elite to expand or protect their economic assets and their social status to foster inter-elite networks and to gather information on other elite families. Um, help us understand what this inner circle of marriage making as a form of alliance building works within these elite families, especially given the background around the sort of tensions that exist between the Nave Raja and the old money elites. Okay, so many of the established elite families that I talk about, you know, they view themselves as having really high culture, right? They, they, they think of themselves as, as really possessing this whole suite of, of culture and, and elite dispositions. But often those families have actually lost a lot of the wealth that they originally had. Not always, but many of them, they continue to own property and they continue to have high status, but they're no longer the most wealthy people in Pakistan. Many, many of those you know, wealth holders are now new money families, those at the very top. But what new money families don't have, of course, is that prestige. And there is this stigma. And there, as you talked about, there are these, the established elite often serves as gatekeepers, keeping out these new money um, families from institutions that they want to be part of and where business decisions are made and marriages are made. Things like the elite social clubs of Lahore and Karachi, things like established elite schools like Etchison College, and, and they try to keep them out. But because these families are losing um, income comparative to the, to the new money families, uh, it's hard to keep them out permanently. And marriage is one of those ways where you can um, blend the wealth of one family with the status of another. And, and that's something that I saw in many of the elite families that I studied. Um, some of them, for instance, ones who came from military backgrounds, you know, associated with the rise of Zia. Um, they, you know, they came from solid middle-class backgrounds and, and then they were in the military, but they weren't able to break into those social forums of the established elite. And, and they weren't able to do business with a certain group of people because they were never invited to the right parties. So, they then go about setting up marriages with the, the daughters or sons of some of those most established elite families. And that is often welcomed because it brings a huge influx of capital to families who are running on fumes. 
<laughs> despite their nice properties, they're running on fumes. Yeah, that's that's that was <laughs> a, 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 an interesting bit in in the <clears throat> sort of overall theme of the book um, was how decisions are made, and and you talk about culture and prestige as sort of the old families being guardians of that. But then you also say and talk about how, um, despite that sort of liberal secular worldview that they like to project, um, internally moral guard guidelines are strictly policed. You cannot do certain things, especially as it relates to, or oh, you can date somebody below your class, but bringing her or him into a marriage alliance is going to be a big no-no. And that I think resonated to me as a Pakistani in the sense that that generally is that that type of you know external projection that we're so modern and secular and liberal in our worldview um, rings very hollow if you scratch beneath the surface and you seem to find that uh, in the elite um, as well. Uh, one thing that I was struck by as I was reading the book was you talk about um, one of the uh, people you're interviewing going to Italy and trying to bring Italian capital in a JV into Pakistan. And that struck a chord with me in the sense that one of the things I um, have talked about and looked at is that, you know, many Pakistani elites, um, most of them, I would argue, um, are okay being sharks in a small pond of Pakistan in the sense that they like to be dominant, um, you know, 0.1% Pakistan, but really don't have either the capacity or the desire to be at the seat with the Ambani's of the world or the Prince Mohammed bin Salman's of the world, etc. Um, is that a fair assessment based on your research? Did you see um, anything regarding their external worldview that stood out to you in the sense that, look, big money elites exist everywhere in the world, but perhaps Pakistani elites are unique in the sense that they don't like to dominate and be competitive in the world because they're just so cozy in their own little pond where they dominate. I think I, I do to a large extent agree with you, but, but one thing worth contextualizing that is that a number of elites, even in other parts of the world, they do find that when they leave their, their country, their, their place of origin, that they no longer hold that status and that access that they had before. There's an interesting book by um, Elizabeth Shimpostel who wrote about Russian, um, Russian elites coming to London and, and the struggles that they found in London. They brought in enormous amounts of money, much more than, than all the Londoners that they were spending time with. And yet they couldn't break into these elite circles. They were, they were viewed as too ostentatious and um, crass and just not conforming to any of those standards. And I think that experience is something that um, many of the elites I studied found that they, they were happy to go overseas and they certainly wanted to to have holiday homes and even to send their children to elite education institutions in the UK or Canada or the US, but they didn't necessarily hold on to their own cultural cachet that they had in Pakistan and that that was a huge loss. I think that's part of the reason that, uh, that people were happy to stay where they were in the community where they were the big fish in the small pond. Uh, and a number of people, this was interesting, I don't know how widespread this is, but a number of people told me they couldn't possibly uh, move overseas permanently because it would be so dull compared to Pakistan, given, you know, the excitement of Pakistani politics and the constant drama, and they were right at the centre of that drama, that it would just be, it would be a dull life, 
you know, and I was doing a lot of my research in 2014, which, um, you know, was a very turbulent, um, politically complex year. And there was, there were quite a lot of attacks and, um, Despite all that, even in that moment of turbulence, many people were saying, I could never leave this excitement. I would be too bored elsewhere. Yeah, that, that was interesting in the sense that, you know, I've seen that happen with some of my own friends that I went to college with who did internships or worked for a couple of years um, in New York or in Miami or at some, you know, JP Morgan type, you know, Goldman Sachs type institutions. Uh, but eventually decided to go back because it was, you know, either dull or too much hard work for too little money. And they were like, I could go join the family business. And yeah, it would be a cultural adjustment um, for a couple of years, but that's fine. And then life is going to be good. Um, and you allude to this all, uh, phenomenon in the book as well, that many of them have dual citizenships, right? So they keep that insurance policy of immigrating mm -hmm. to Canada or the United States or London, um, if need be, um, which brings me to my other point that you sort of write in the book is that, you know, you say, quote, beyond the centrality of the state in generating opportunities to acquire and amass wealth and assets, most Pakistanis do not regard the Pakistani state as a moral actor. Uh, help us understand why that is the case. Why don't Pakistani elites see the state as a moral actor? And that sort of brings me to the second part of the question. Um, which is broader than, than your book, and I would love your thoughts uh, on it as well, is that generally when um, one looks at elites um, in developing countries, um, including elites like Jinnah, pre-1947, he was an elite who played a key role in building institutions and having a vision for their people. Um, did you get a sense um, from your research that the elites that you were talking to had a sense of a higher responsibility and a higher calling um, to make Pakistan progress um, instead of just amassing wealth and fortunes for themselves and their families? Yeah, two good questions in a row. <laughs> uh, the state not being a moral actor. Um, I mean, a, a lot of people did talk about, interesting, almost as though it was a person, the state being immoral. And um, I, I think that was a way of distancing themselves from the structure that creates inequality within the country, right? So calling the and, state- and Sorry to interrupt, but you, that's such an important point because to me it resonated in that sense as well, that this was their way of distancing themselves in terms of the immorality of the state that they were themselves contributing to by the corruption and, and the deals that they were making. Yes, exactly, exactly. And um, almost almost giving the state a personality. You know, it's the state which is immoral and it's the structure that makes that makes this inequality. And I just I just do what I need to do to survive within this structure. There's a really strong narrative and, and related to that, every everyone that I, I met, regardless of whether they were primarily a business family, a military family, a political family, was always locating the blame for the inequality of, 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 the, of the state or the inequality across Pakistan somewhere else you know the businessmen were always blaming the politicians the politicians were blaming the business you know the businessmen both were blaming the military um, and then all of them would yeah would would blame the state you know it's the structure and this is what we need to do to survive if not me you know if i don't take advantage of it somebody else will and this real sense of i'm not culpable and i'm not responsible for this that was incredibly widespread i mean as a related point many people 
didn't even refer to themselves as elite. They would say, yes, the elites are all corrupt. And I'd say, you don't think you're elite? <laughs> you know, like, aren't you also elite? But I've had that conversation with several people I know who would refer to themselves as middle class. And I would pull up the household income survey from the Pakistan Bureau of Statistics and be like, you're not even in the fifth quintile. The fifth quintile is like, a hundred something thousand rupees a month. That's how much you spend on your parties. I'm sorry, but you're not middle class. Right, and isn't that amazing? Because it, it's like the term middle class conjures up an image for them about you know about a certain set of values and a certain kind of lifestyle. And it also makes them feel like they can point upwards and say, it's, it's not me, it's them. You know, <laughs> it's those people up there who cause this structure, which is, um, which is causing many, many people to not be able to get ahead, not to be able to live decent lives. Um, so I, I guess that, that leads into the second part of your question about do elites feel responsibility for the state and a desire to make, or, or responsibility for the country or a desire to make Pakistan um, better? And I mean, I think, that's, I think that's a really interesting question as well, because I would say the answer is, both yes and no. Um, amongst the people that I knew, they had a really clear sense of their own morality and they defined it in a way that was potentially different from the way that you and I would define it. So they, they, they had a responsibility for a group of people, but that group of people was um, a, a defined group within their own sphere, their family, their extended family, their home village, the, the workers in their factory, the families of the workers of their factory, and, and that was all. It didn't extend to the consumers that their product was, um, was designed to exploit, you know, the, the price raises that, that they were incrementally raising for the poorest wage labor, you know, daily wage um, workers um, were, were not factored into that. They didn't think about anyone that they couldn't see or weren't immediately involved with. Uh, and in terms of morality as well, I was, I've been thinking about this recently and it's, it's an interesting topic about, you know, to what extent does the Pakistani public hold their elite to account for this, this certain behavior, right? For, for continuous acts of illegality or for, con, you know, for widespread tax evasion, you know, evading tax obviously disadvantages an enormous group of Pakistanis because they don't get basic services in terms of health or education that they need in order to expand their own prospects. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think on the, on the taxes <laughs> point, um, I remember um, the current advisor to the prime minister on finance, who's now soon going to be finance minister, he's an elite himself. And he was here in Washington at an event a few weeks ago. And, you know, he was talking about like every finance minister in Pakistan talks about narrow tax base. We need to broaden the tax base. And then he was like, you know, we're bringing in big data and AI and machine learning to, you know, look at spending patterns and, and get people. And I was aghast and I was like fuming and, and had to hold myself back and responding to him in the sense that I don't think you need uh, big data models to broaden Pakistan's tax base, right? You need to go to the parties in Lahore, Karachi, and Islamabad on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights um, and have the FBR just knock on people's car windows and say, do you own this car? Take down their registration plate and address 
and then look up their tax records and you will very quickly find that they're not paying the fair share of taxes that they're owed. You don't need big data models to tell, you could tell us, you know, based right. on the three page list that you had at the outside, at the onset of your research, you could tell here are the families, go check them out. But that would require a fundamental shift in the way uh, the state operates, right? Right, right. And, and thinking about big data models, ways of doing that, you know, Mahbub al-Haq's study from 1968, you know, this famous study of the 22 families, you know, he, obviously he was the chief economist, so he had some good economic modeling, but that was 1968 and he didn't have any big data modeling to identify who these families were. And that, you know, really scandalized the country, right? That, that led to a huge amount of rioting and, and, and you know, like, what are our elites doing? How is it possible that this small group of families um, hold this wealth? But um, you said, that, you know, the FBI could just go around and look at people's cars and parties but they can't because they would do it they would find them and then someone senior in the fbr would say no but that that's my you know that's my cousin some, or some that's, of them, that's some my of them might be at the party themselves right exactly right exactly exactly so a lot of these institutions are really hamstrung and, and as part of the research i was doing i think I, I talk about a real case in the book um involving the secp the securities exchange commission and um and this is lengthy court case which proves again and again that this elite family has engaged in all sorts of illegal acts and is just continually battered away and they walk away without any kind of penalty. Your, your part in that book that, you know, as I was reading the SECP paragraphs, um, you know, when you were handed the case um, and the research and the guy said, don't tell anybody, I gave it to you. I started chuckling about this primarily because just last week um, they uploaded on the finance ministry's website an audit report about COVID-19 funds and, and discrepancies or irregularities as the Auditor General of Pakistan call, refers to them. Um, and, and the sort of rejoinder once the news stories about this came out uh, issued by, I think it was the finance ministry or somebody from the government uh, basically said that this report had been submitted to parliament uh, months ago and therefore it is public knowledge and when I read your passage about you know you have to know the system in order to get your hand on a copy of something like you did um, I was laughing because I was like just because it's something submitted to parliament does not make it a public document if you upload it on the web even as a pdf that is a scanned copy of a pdf that to me is still not a public document because google will not pick that up the seo mm -hmm. won't pick up the words on the pdf document so this whole definition of even transparency and the way these elites look at transparency is also flawed because one is like well yes the secp did a report and there was a wheat inquiry report and an ogra report and this and that um, but A, most people don't read those documents because they're not accessible. Um, B, nothing comes out of it in the sense that nothing really changes. So you may have the SECP report. And I send that passage from your book about, you know, the stockbroker saying, you know, my maids and my janitors have all accounts and they're millionaires on paper. Um, and I sent it to a friend who's in the stock market and he was laughing. I was like, yeah, this has always been the case and still is, right? So the, the investigation does not yield any change um, in, in terms of change of structures. Right. Yeah. No, that's, I'm glad that it's being verified amongst your own network. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it rings, it rings fully true. Um, and it, it, it was just, you know, parts of that. That's why I love the book in the sense that, you know, a lot of it resonates true because we've seen this, we've heard this, 
um, uh, in Pakistan discourse. Most people, even in the middle, upper middle classes are aware of how these things operate. But now we have a well-researched primary source, even though anonymized account of these families that we can point to and say, look, here's, here's the evidence as well in, in terms of you know, what, what goes on. Um, one thing that um, I would love your thoughts on um, as you write in the book was this constant sort of um, behind the screen of sort of behind the walls of the mansions, their lives are very different in the sense that alcohol is there, there are secret rooms with cocaine, um, everybody knows what's going on, but some people uh, don't indulge and that's okay too. But then when someone picks up the camera and takes a picture at a birthday party, the bottles of Johnny Walker need to be cleared out. Um, how did you find that experience? Because as a Pakistani, that for us, many of us at least, it's very normalized. Um, and I was just curious about how you saw um, this sort of hypocrisy in the sense that, yes, we do all of these things, but it's not okay. Therefore, we'll keep it super private as well. Mm. I think at the time, I remember one instance where I, I, I was asked to take a photo by one of, the, one of the women at the party and I took out a camera and I just took one. And then I got told off quietly and politely, but I got told off. And I felt more embarrassed at the time for myself that I hadn't read the room right. You know, like I sort of realized afterwards, oh, of course, people don't want photos, you know, with all of this here. And so I felt embarrassed that I hadn't that I hadn't picked that up quicker. Um, I mean, I think given given the state of religiosity and um, the role that religion has in Pakistan, things like alcohol can be absolutely explosive, right? And they can really damage people's careers and reputations. So I do understand um, removing them, you know, it's a reputation management issue. It's, it's like it's, it's a day-to-day -day risk management and, and people are curating their reputations and their reputations influence how they do business and who they have access to and how they're seen. And, and just in relation to that, um, you know, to that earlier question about morality, I think a lot of times people are also performing religiosity and piety, right? So there was a lot of, um, a lot of media coverage of many of the families that I, that I knew well, like very publicly going on Hajj or, you know, performing this, this very public religious role. And um, I mean, interestingly, even during Ramzan, like all the, all the families that I knew, every, even the people who drank like fish the rest of the year actually did stop drinking. <laughs> it was a very quiet month. So that was interesting to me as well. Like people suddenly got in line. <laughs> One thing when you, when you talked about that in the book, um, I was uh, sort of half chuckling was that I, I, maybe you, you saw this and didn't write about this was that Ramzan is a quiet month, but on Chandra, the bootleggers are short on supply. Because that's when the last five days is when all the calls go out to say, okay, the month is over. Can I procure something? And there's a general shortage um, in Pakistan's black market for alcohol. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was um, mostly attending the parties rather than buying the alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so I probably didn't see that side so much. Yeah, and, and, and sort of, you know, towards the tail end of the book, you sort of, um, point to this fact that, you know, quote, the contemporary Pakistani elite are closer to their colonial predecessors and their abuse of power on moral grounds 
um, then they would like to acknowledge, which struck so true to me in the sense that we've talked about, we've had economists on this podcast, we've had people who sort of looked at Pakistan's political economy, looked at patterns of corruption and how that occurs. Um, you know, I've seen this type of um, capture with the current ruling party, right? The Pakistan Tariq which came on this platform of anti-corruption and justice and has been co-opted and hijacked in so many ways. Um, by these same elite interest groups were extracting wealth. Um, as you were sort of wrapping up your time in Pakistan, um, did you see any sort of signs of change that made you optimistic about the fact that what I call, and you don't call this this, but I call it a kleptocracy, um, that this kleptocracy will ever reform um, given the serious challenges Pakistan faces, food insecurity, climate change, uneducated youth um, population like there's so many issues right and you have this sort of island of elites um that is extractive like the colonists were um were, did you leave hopeful in the sense that maybe some things might change and this country will find its way around the world <laughs> ah that's an interesting question uh i did leave hopeful that pakistan would increase its wealth base and that you know, as a result of moving into middle income status, there would be more wealth available and there would be less um, people living in poverty. I, I think there's a lot of business development and that that's happening, right? The economy is growing. So I was, I was positive about that. In terms of elite capture, I, I have to say I didn't, I didn't feel particularly optimistic. In terms of the people that I was spending time with there there really wasn't uh, that sense of um, of responsibility for changing the structure there wasn't in the conversations that I had at least there was no expressed desire to really reform you know the nature of of the of the state or to um to ensure that the tax base is broadened or to implement a more effective welfare arm of the states um, so, but I, I, I did meet people like that who did want to do that, but they were maybe not those people at the very top of the structure. They were other kinds of professionals who were committed to reforming Pakistan and, you know, improving education and, and improving access to, to healthcare and other things. But, um, at the very top, it's funny. I spoke to the, um, I think it was, the principal of Etchison College, and he was saying, at the top, the goodies are just too good. <laughs> that was a quote. He's like, they're just too good. And, um, and that was his way, I guess, of describing what happens to people. And, and I, think, I think it does. The lifestyle and the benefit is so amazing when you're right in that position that the incentives to change it are, are really minimal. Yeah, and, and I think that that in and of itself is the political economy challenge in the sense that those in parliament are not truly representatives of the people in the sense that they cannot relate to the economic status or the economic hardship um, that their voters, um, majority of them face and feel on a daily basis. And we sometimes see that in Pakistan, right? When uh, a journalist will quickly ask a finance minister, what's the price of tomatoes? And he'll say an absurd number that is simply not true. And, you know, the media will mock and make fun, people will mock and make fun of that. 
uh, WhatsApp videos of that will go viral because they'll mm -hmm. say, look, see, they're totally disconnected. How do you expect, how do you expect them to um, do anything for you? Um, and that to me um, resonated, not resonated, but stood in stark contrast with even the other subcontinental political economies, right? You look at India or even Bangladesh, um, which I follow loosely, that when you look at their parliaments, yes, Bangladesh is a one-party authoritarian state. India has its own uh, issues in terms of democratic backsliding. But when you look at their Lok Sabhas and their parliaments at the provincial and at the central level, you find representatives across many classes. You'll find Dalits, poor people, middle-class people, farmer representatives. You don't see that in Pakistan's uh, provincial and national assemblies. And, and you allude to that repeatedly in the book, right, about how closed the system is and how how closely it guards its domain um, in the sense of you know participation from everybody else and that then links to um, social mobility and inequality and things like that so to me that that was such an important theme of the book that you know while you were researching elite families you sort of help the reader understand the implications of what this means um, and i think we often forget um, that, mm. that this has real world implications in Pakistan's human developmental trajectory, um, which mm. is in a sad, sad, sad place right now. Yes, yes, it, it, it does. I mean, I guess one slightly optimistic moment is that if you, if you look, you know, in the process of looking at the historical shifts which have accompanied each of these families, rises and falls from power, you can see the impact of major policy changes on what that does in terms of opening up the space or closing down the space for new people to enter and benefit from growing wealth. And perhaps that is one positive thing to take away from it, that good policy making can really transform people's access to resources and their ability, you know, to, to grow their own income and, and to, and to improve their lives and the lives of a larger number of people. So, and then that has happened to some degree, you know, in each of the, in each of the, the decades following partition. So, so maybe that's something that, you know, yeah. good policymaking can change things. And the problem is of course, getting people into those roles where they have an incentive and also where there's where they're held accountable by the population and there's a mechanism in place to penalize them if they don't act in a way that represents their constituents interests. Yeah, but, and, and, and that aligns with sort of what we've seen, for example, talking about policy changes with the SECP and the State Bank in particular with relation to startup investing, right? There have been reforms pushed over the last two years. And all of a sudden now you have younger entrepreneurs capable of you know raising seven eight ten million dollars for their startup ideas which in and of itself are seeking to disrupt the old economy right now yeah. if you look at pakistan's uh, historic trajectory the cynic may argue well this is going to be another mechanism of elite capture and maybe they're right in arguing that point but at the very least it's creating new opportunities of economic inclusion and disruption um which otherwise would have had to occur through reform on the political economy side. But since that's not happening, perhaps this is the next best alternative that we can have um, in mm. reforming agricultural markets and things like that, that empower farmers and, and, and lower middle classes as well. But um, I'm mindful of time. And again, I want to thank you for 
this fantastic research that you've done. Um, hopefully we can get this book in the hands of many more Pakistanis um, in the next few months. Um, and, and, and before I let you go, I would love your recommendations on other books that you, know, you would uh, say people should pick up and read. It can be on any topic, but anything that comes to mind in terms of what you think uh, is an important read. Well, let me just, because um, I'm just thinking about, you know, books related to Pakistani elites and, and being an anthropologist, I have a bit of a, a skewed interest in, in looking at those personal lives of elites. And so they're a little bit older, but two books on Pakistan that I found really useful were Nicholas Martin's book, Politics, um, Landlords and Islam in Pakistan. It's a really fascinating look at the rural, the rural elite. And, and how they've they've worked in those patronage politics. And Stephen Lyon also has an excellent book on political kinship in Pakistan. There's one other book, if, if people are interested in branching out and looking at how elites work in other places like China, there is a really fantastic book called Anxious Wealth, Money and Morality Among China's New Rich by John Osberg. And even though that's about China, I think it is just this fascinating look at, at new money and power and um, and it also shed a lot of light on Pakistan for me so I would really recommend that um, as something that people might want to delve into yeah I think all China books are welcome particularly given uh, Pakistan's relations with China but also mm -hmm. because how often China has been pointed to as a exemplary developmental model for Pakistan, where the prime minister right. says, look, they've ended corruption, et cetera. And um, although <laughs> that's not true, um, a lot of people buy it. So perhaps they should read the book Anxious Wealth and they will learn a bit more about how the Chinese political economy operates. Mm. It's complex and, and very different, but similar in its own way. So um, thank you for those recommendations. And again, thank you so much for taking out the time today. Thank you for your research. Um, and maybe at some point you'll be back in Pakistan to do the original project that you intended to do, <laughs> the middle classes, perhaps. <laughs> maybe. I think Amara Maksud did a really great book on the, on the Pakistani middle class already, so I might leave it to her because that All was right. another excellent book. But I would love to come back to Pakistan and do some more research. So hopefully soon. Well, hopefully we'll see you soon in Pakistan. And again, to everyone tuning in, thank you so much for joining um, this book is a must read. The link is below. Um, it's available on Amazon Kindle. Um, and soon, hopefully, we can get it on book in bookstores across Pakistan as well. So, Rosita, thank you so much for your time and have a thank great you. rest of the day. Thank you so much. You too.